Welcome to another episode of VBC's Post-9-11 Veterans Storytelling Program. The mission of the Veterans Breakfast Club is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories, and we accomplish this through public storytelling programs where veterans of all eras can share their memories in their own words. Our program today was recorded live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Enjoy the program. All right, thanks everyone for coming out tonight. I appreciate it. It's our very first event for Post-9-11 Veterans, and we're glad to see you all here. A little housekeeping at the beginning here. So we're going to be recording tonight. We are a primarily a history organization, so we record things for posterity. I guess we'll start off, uh, I'd like to introduce Todd DiPastino, the Executive Director of Veterans Breakfast Club, tell you a little bit about the idea of of how we got here. Thanks, Nick. My name is Todd. Yeah, I'll take applause. Thank you, Ed. My name is Todd DiPastino. I'm not a veteran. I'm the director of the Veterans Breakfast Club. Uh, I'm a historian. I teach history and I write history. Eight years ago, um, I got together with a friend, 30 World War II veterans in the South Hills. And the idea was just, just give them the mic and let them talk. And it was absolutely magical just to have these veterans from you know, different branches of service and different theaters of war kind of share their experiences together. And so the second time we had them come together and uh, bring their families and we got about 60 people and they did it again and it was wonderful. So then we, we, you know, we started, we thought we'd do it in the North Hills and then Penn Hills and we started to get younger veterans like Ben, he was a young guy when he came because he was Vietnam, you know. We started to get the Korean vets and Vietnam vets. And so now we have about 40 or 50 of these events throughout Western Pennsylvania every year. And we have them in a dozen different locations. But they're all breakfast events. And we weren't getting young vets. And we did some intensive research, days of research. And we discovered that young vets have jobs. (laughs) They have something called a job, and they have families. And so they're not going to come out on a Wednesday morning to have a breakfast. And so we knew that we would have to, if you're going to reach the young vets, uh, we'd have to, you know, do it in the evening like we're doing tonight. And this is our very first one. And it was just so interesting to me, and I know I'm taking up too much time, but I just want to say, it was so interesting to me, just when I first arrived, to hear Jake Volker, who is very, who's the owner here. Jake, thank you very much for giving up the Voodoo Brewery. I'm an eavesdropper, that's all I do. I overhear these conversations between Jake and Nick, and it was so reminiscent when they were talking about their service in Afghanistan, so reminiscent of what I've heard from the older vets. I met one last night who served in the 1st Cavalry Division in the Admiralty Islands. Uh, wounded twice in New Guinea. And he said one of the biggest problems that he faced coming home is nobody ever heard of the Admiralty Islands. Nobody ever heard at that time of the 1st Cavalry Division. If, they, if it wasn't Iwo Jima or it wasn't Normandy, they didn't want to hear your story. And the Korean vets, their whole service was like that. You know, nobody really wanted to hear it. Nobody knew much. Vietnam, of course, had its own trauma associated with that service, and we hear that a lot at our breakfast. You know, fighting in a war that became deeply unpopular, and it was very difficult to come home, you know, on a home front that was so unwelcoming in so many ways. And it just strikes me that I think you guys have a lot in common with the older generations, and you have something distinct, and you all know what it is, and that is there are so few of you. 
It's such a tiny military today. I mean, we have to go back to 1938 to go to a military that that small as it is today. One half of 1% serve. That's the smallest proportion since 1938. You know, you guys served in the first extended wars that we fought with an all-volunteer force. And so I think it's a whole different experience that you had. And I think it's hard for civilians like me to get to know you when there aren't that many of you, you know? What my hope is for these programs is to kind of bring you guys together with members of the community like me who want to hear about what your service was like and about maybe what coming home was like and you know what, what your service means to you today, the good and the bad. So I'm really excited to kind of launch this with Nick today and let's throw it to the stories, okay? All right, yeah. Uh, so we are privileged enough this evening to have George Metz here with us. He's a Vietnam veteran. He's going to talk a little bit about his service and then what the, the Veterans Breakfast Club morning events uh, mean for him. Hello, everybody. My name's George Metz. I was drafted in 68, wound up going into the Army. I wound up going through my basic at Fort Jackson, went up to Dick's, was in A Special Troops, wound up going to Vietnam, and I worked on a depot. I worked in a retrograde warehouse. And I was pulling guard duty one night, and I seen these helicopters come in. I said, oh, I'd like to take a ride on one. And I wound up volunteering to be a door gunner. The unit I flew with flew VIP service. They flew all the generals and Bob Hope and all those people come into town. I got with a unit that was with the 195th. We were limousine service, which I call for the, the Green Berets. We took the Green Berets into Cambodia, which I was never there and I never saw the welcome sign. <laughs> and like I always say, it's a fun job till I had a bad day at the office and I had a couple bad days. And then when I come home, I was out for 16 years and I wound up going into a guard unit out of Washington, PA. They suckered me back in for a while, and I said, look, I don't like playing Army. I don't need the money, but if I can fly, I'll join. When I walked over the board and said, here you go, there's a flight slot. So I took it, and I spent a couple years in there, and me and him didn't get along too well, so I got out of there. And I met a gentleman by the name of Michael Novosel. The man grew up in Aetna. He was Art Rooney's caddy, seen Babe Ruth at his last home run. He flew in three different wars. Second World War, he flew B-29s. The Air Force joins him in 47. He flew recon during the Korean War, an instructor. It made rank a lieutenant colonel. He wanted to go to Vietnam. They said he was too old and had too much rank. He said nuts on you and joined it as a W-1. He did his first tour in Vietnam as a dust-off pilot. He came back home. He went back on his second tour. His son joined him. They were the only father and son to fly in combat together. Son gets shot down, dad rescued him. A week later, dad gets shot down, the son rescues him. Between the two of them, they were saved over 8,000 servicemen. He was a Congressional Medal of Honor recipient, which he got in Vietnam. And I got to be friends with that man. And he changed my life. Because I run the foundation that's in his name. It takes care of Afghan and Iraq vets, guard and reservists. That's what we're set up to do. And we take care of everything car payments, rent, utility, whatever they need. We try to help them the best we can. And like I told Nick, if you need to get hold of me, I don't give a darn if it's 
three o'clock in the morning when those demons stick their heads up. I know about that. And they get nasty sometimes. And you need somebody to talk to, give me a call. I don't care what I'm doing. I got two numbers. So if anybody wants my phone number, I got some business cards. Okay. Thanks, George. All right, next up, we've got a, a squid on our hands, Bench Stahl. Come on up, buddy. So what brought you to the Navy, Ben? Uh, September 11th. Um, I, I was still living at home, and my sister woke me up. It's like, hey, I think we're at war, and I went to the recruiter the next day. How old were you? 22. 2001, yeah, 22. Just turned 22. How much time did you spend in the Navy, and what did you do while you were uh, I was in the Navy about nine years. I was a minesweep electrician. Uh, I was on the USS Gladiator, USS Dextrous, and the USS Avenger. Uh, we participated in mine countermeasure in maritime security operations. I uh, deployed to the Northern Arabian Gulf for Operation Iraqi Freedom two times. And um, after September 11th, we did Q routes on the West Coast to get the magnetic signature of the West Coast of the United States of America, make sure there was no ridiculous metal objects. It was torture. Uh, they call it cutting the grass, going back and forth in San Francisco Harbor, seeing the lights of the city and sitting out there. But, you know. What was your, the funniest memory you have of, of boot camp? Oh, probably the, they call it the, the Ricky Smurfs in the Navy. I had to think for a while for that. Um, and at boot camp in the Navy, they give you your recruit sweat gear. So you have the blue Navy hoodie and the blue Navy sweatpants. And then uh, people used to slide underneath the racks. We still, it was before they rebuilt out Great Lakes. So now it's different. So, uh, but before it was, you know, your whole division, 80 guys, and you'd slide through uh, underneath the racks and tie people to their racks. So. <laughs> Did you like boot camp? I would do 20 years in boot camp. <laughs> if I could get a retirement from boot camp, I'd be in Great Lakes tomorrow. Wait a minute, he was in the Navy. <laughs> it's tying knots. They, they show you how to dance with a mop. It's great times. You're wearing bell bottoms all day. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's fun. Are you, so you did two deployments? Yeah. Uh, the first deployment we left USS, well, they were uh, increasing the sea presence in the, in the NAG at that point. So there was two minesweepers over there, the Dexterous and I believe the Sentry or the Ardent. So they cut the minesweep fleet because it's a real, it's a special skill to be a, you know, a minesweep electrician. There's only you know, X amount of them in the Navy and people that can actually deploy minesweeping gear. So they busted the ships in the rotational crews and they put a bunch of mothballs and then they dubbed us a rock crew. So our first rock crew, we were uh, MCM crew constant. We deployed to get the USS Dextrous out of the shipyard. They had some catastrophic failures out at sea and they were laid up. I think they had to pull some of their shafts. So we took over the Dextrous in the yards and I was on the initial flyaway squad to get the ship ship shape to get out to sea. So, you know, the gyro was down. The helm console was down. Everything was, it was laid up. You're using a lot of semen language, and most of us don't know what any I of that means. I didn't realize that. So the steering wheel was broke. 
the thing that points you where you're going was broke. A lot of stuff was broke. And I was the, uh, I was the LPO in the Navy speak. That's the, uh, I guess the sergeant of, I don't know. I was, I was the head electrician. I was the, the, the shit hot electrician. So I went over there first and had to uh, get everything ready to go out to sea. So, I mean, it's, their ACs are done. And that ship, if you can imagine how hot it was during the day in Iraq, it's even hotter on the water when that heat is bouncing up, cooking inside the skin of a ship in an engine room. It, it gets a little nuts. So the ACs are still down, and we had to get the ship, you know, underway, limited time. But we ended up getting it, you know, pulling it out of the shipyard, and we got it underway, did sea trials in Bahrain. That's ridiculous. That's unheard of. But it had to be done because the ship was laid up in the yards. I remember getting off the plane like, holy shit, it's hot out here. It was like the middle of the night and you could see the heat waves. I was like, damn, it looks like something in a movie. And then straight to the boat. Put on coveralls and started turning wrenches. What year did you get out? 2010. And what have you been doing since then? Go out of the Navy, started going to school. Um, I was fortunate enough to get out of the Navy in 2010 when you could still collect 99 weeks of unemployment in the state of Pennsylvania. So I rode that for two years, front-loaded as many credits as I could, and got you know my bachelor's degree, my, my master's, and uh, finishing up my doctorate now. Todd DiPastino's on my uh, dissertation committee. I've been working uh, with, you know, before my current role at Veterans Leadership Program, I was, you know, working with the VFW and uh, as a service officer, and now I'm the interim executive director of Veterans Leadership Program, just helping the, my, my brothers and sisters in arms, you know, when they're, they need help. You're also on the board of Veterans Breakfast Club, right? I am. I'm the vice president of the board of directors of the Veterans Breakfast Club. It's an honor. I've been on the board for about two years. I've got that seat on the board um, from my, my time in CLCV, which we've, we shared. We were part of the CLCV cohort number one, funded by the Heinz Endowments, who happens to be in attendance tonight, Mr. Jim Rohr. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. Hey, man. Thank you. Appreciate you being here. So next, we've got Megan Andros. Boy, does she have a worried look on her face. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I guess we should say, of course, nobody has to talk. But everybody is welcome to talk. And, uh, of course, we have some ringers here. Just, you know, and Megan, you are one of them. You don't have to come up. You can talk from right there if you want. Yeah. Megan actually has to talk, though, because she has me talking for her tomorrow, so she's talking for me tonight. <laughs> You are a former Army officer? I am. What brought you to the Army? I got recruited to play tennis at West Point. My senior year of high school was when September 11th happened, um, and I had already started getting recruited by the coach, and I was naive in that. I thought, I don't think that I realized what I was getting myself into for a lot of reasons, but it was tennis. Short answer. So, West Point has Division One sports, so um, I was going to recruit by a, ton, a lot of different schools, but I knew that I was never going to be a professional tennis player, so I thought I tried to use tennis to get me to the best school possible, it set me up for the rest of my life, and I knew West Point was a really great opportunity. I started in the fall of 2002, uh, July 1st was my first day, and graduated in May of 2006. And then what? Where did, it, where did the Army take you? So I graduated as an ordinance officer. My first eight months, 
actually I spent at West Point, one of the perks of being an athlete at West Point is there's always one slot on each team after you graduate for a graduate assistant. So I ended up essentially being the assistant tennis coach for the next eight months. It was fun. Um, I also had had ankle surgery, so I had to recover, and that was kind of so for that purpose as well. And then after my time there, I ended up heading down to Fort Benning for three months for Bullock, and Bullock Two at that point. That's they changed the name, and then I went to Fort, to Aberdeen Proving Ground for my OBC to learn how to be an ordnance officer. And then I spent the next three and three quarter years, probably about at Fort Hood with the First Cavalry Division. While you're at West Point, you met a cool drink of water as well, I did. correct? I I know what it's like to be a soldier and the spouse of a soldier. <laughs> so you're at Fort Hood, uh, and you deployed with them in what year? I was in Iraq for basically all of 2009. What did you do while you were over there? I was the um, XO of a maintenance company. My first job was go to Fob Falcon, which is southeast of Baghdad, and sign for it all the equipment for one of the units from that was uh, going back to the States and make sure and get all of it sent up to the northwest uh, sector, I guess northwest of Baghdad, to Taji, which I ended up spending then the next 11 months in Taji. And so after signing all the equipment for all the equipment and shipping it out, I got to Taji and took over a job as the uh, maintenance control officer for a brigade support battalion. So I had about 100 soldiers that worked for me, and they did generator uh, maintenance, vehicle maintenance, uh, missiles, weapons. I had welders. I had recovery specialists, radios, night vision. And it was my job to make sure the parts were ordered. We got them in. We stocked them. We distributed them. I traded to get things that I couldn't get or had to make friends with other units. So I did that then for about six or seven months. Uh, in Iraq, and then moved to be the brigade support operations planner. So in that role, should I explain, probably? Please. In that role, it meant that uh, all the logistics functions that the brigade did, so making sure everybody had water, food, fuel, ice, parts. When we were leaving Iraq, making sure that the plan was ready for how we took our equipment out of theater and at the same time got our replacements equipment into theater. Um, so did that uh, for, the, for the last part of the tour, went home, and then I did, I was the brigade reset officer. So I think about 32,000 pieces of equipment, everything from Humvees to weapons to gas masks, I had to track and make sure they were ready for the next deployment. So you and Dave were actually in the same brigade, you were deployed together, correct? He moved to Taji from a JSS, a Joint Security Station, probably month 10 of the 12-month tour. And prior to month 10, we, I think, saw each other twice. I think the first time was maybe month five or six, and we were like four miles apart from each other. Wow. So, four, six, somewhere in there. Yeah. And so when did you decide uh, to get out? Dave got out before I did. Um, it was hard being... At that point, we had been married and in the military for four years and probably at the same place at the same time for like six months, maybe. And we knew leaving West Point that our soldiers were our priority no matter what in our marriage and, our, and everything else. Our personal stuff came second. After your five-year commitment at West Point is up, it, we had to take a really long look at where our priorities stood at that point. And we were just ready to move on to other things. So that's why. 
So what did you, what did you do when you got out? So when I got out, um, Dave was at Cornell up in Ithaca. And so I actually worked in the admissions department of the business school for a year. And my territory was Europe, which was awesome. I went to Europe three times that year. And then after that year was over, he already had a job in Pittsburgh. We knew we were moving to Pittsburgh. So it was, it was a really fun year. And after spending so much time apart, it was great to, to have that year together. Up in Ithaca, we got a puppy and it was fun. Uh, and then moved to Pittsburgh that summer, and uh, I was a Coral Fellow. While I was on terminal leave, I took my first job with a veterans nonprofit. That summer, I worked as an unpaid intern for an organization called Peton, which was supposed to help veterans transition to the workforce. It's a public policy fellowship program. It's in five cities across the country. They choose 12 people in Pittsburgh each year. It's competitive. I did that because I wanted to, coming out of the military, it's often hard to see or know where your skills really fit. And um, I thought it would be a great way for me to try some jobs on. And uh, through that, I met my boss, Rob Stephanie, at the endowments. And I never wanted to be in veterans things or in the veterans space, but I felt like while well, I was a Coral Fellow, there were, I was hearing about and reading all these articles about veterans that veterans weren't taking part in. I felt like I had this unique opportunity to try to influence in a good way, kind of, or maybe a more realistic way, or my perspective about kind of what was what was happening, what it was like to be a veteran, what it was like to try to reintegrate. And so, so yeah, I joined the endowments then. So you live in Mount Lebanon, you work downtown. What is uh, people's reaction when they find out that you are a lady veteran? I would say most of the time they don't, they don't, uh, so. Most, 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 people think, most people think she's just my spouse. Yeah. Most of the time they don't realize that I'm a veteran and the conversation is, is if I'm sitting next to Dave at an event or it's what year did you graduate, what did you do in the army, you know, what was your favorite part, and not for a second even considering that I might have been in the military as well. So, um, Can you tell that story you told me the other day about the ring? Yeah, so we were at Founders Day, which is a West Point event every year that celebrates the founding of West Point. And I've gone twice in the 10 years I've been out uh, of school. And this, we were there maybe in March and sitting next to a nice gentleman that had also graduated maybe in the 50s. Uh, and they were peppering Dave with all of their questions about his life at West Point and in the Army. And um, I very rarely wear my West Point ring, but to West Point functions I do. I, I'm a ring knocker at that point. And, <laughs> and, uh, and he looked at me, and the guy sitting right next to me looked at me and said, oh, can I see your miniature ring? Which West Pointers, uh, I think it still happens, but um, tradition is, was that when you married your high school sweetheart, you would give them a miniature version of your West Point ring. And so... I showed him my ring and he quickly realized that it was not a miniature and that I had, in fact, graduated from West Point as well, so. Megan, I I have a question and it's just because I live in Mount Lebanon and for those of you who know Mount Lebanon, I imagine, and I could be wrong, that there aren't many young vets who live in Mount Lebanon and I'm just wondering, when you're, you know, out in the community and if people find out that you're a veteran, do they ask you about it? Are they curious? Do they ask you if you, you know, went to Iraq or Afghanistan? I mean, what do they, how do they react? So there are a couple young veterans in Mount Lebanon, but, but I will also say that Dave's probably out and about in Mount Lebanon more than I am with a full-time job and a, I, I don't know, I don't know if I've ever been in this situation. I, I have... The questions that I get, though, I will tell you, are often, 
because I'm a woman and I've been in the service. So like if I'm on an airplane sitting next to somebody and we're just chit-chatting, it has to do with being a woman in the military. But I think I find generally that the civilian-military divide is pretty real. I find that in my personal life and in my professional life. So I don't know if that's helpful in answering your question, but... Awesome. Thanks so much, Megan. Thank you. All right, next up, we got Rob Garofalo. He uh, works here at Voodoo Brewery with Jake. Uh, he is a 12-year veteran of the Marine Corps. How you doing, guys? Uh, so I'm Rob. I work here. Um, the good-looking guy in the back, Jacob. You might know him. Uh, so during the day, we work at uh, the National Cemetery, the Alleghenies, and we bury veterans. So at some point, if you stay in Pittsburgh, you might come see me. It's a fact. Well, I can't promise you anything except for a good ride. I'll give you a 50 or 100. 1,500 bucks? All right, sold. All right, so anyway, I've been out uh, of the Marine Corps for not even, well, just about a year and a half. Um, also live in Mount Lebanon. Closed on my house three months ago, so I don't even know what their mascot is, but go Mount Lebanon. I'm a young veteran, 33 years young, and uh, I, I think I looked out, my neighbors two doors down uh, used to be, if, if any of you guys remember what MEPS is, yep. the military entrance processing station where they make you cough and do all that fun stuff. So two doors down is the former commander of the MEPS station, so we drink a lot of beer together. It's a fun time. Uh, it's kind of like our own little veterans breakfast club every night on Inglewood. So, uh, 12 years in the Marine Corps. My first four were at Pendleton. My MOS is amphibious assault vehicles. If you know what that is, it's our job to get from ship to shore uh, with no illumination, kill people, and then get back to ship. Let's back up just a little bit. How did you get to the Marine Corps? How did I get to the Marine Corps? I was also a senior when 9-11 happened. I was living in Miami, Florida. Uh, that's where I spent most of my life. And I saw the towers hit. I have a lot of family from New York. Uh, and originally I was like, oh, I'm going to go to the Air Force. I want to be an air traffic controller. And then like something in my brain said, no, you should go hurt people that hurt your family. So that's what I did. If you really want the truth. So went to the Marine Corps. Uh, I graduated high school on a Friday. On a Monday morning, the following Monday morning, I was in Paris Island. Uh, did that thing. I know you heard about fun stuff that happened at boot camp. There wasn't anything fun at my boot camp. Um, well, uh, there may be one thing. So I said I one time, bad, bad thing to do at a Marine Corps boot camp. So I stood in front of a mirror for about 45 minutes saying, I, this recruit, I, this recruit for 45 minutes. That's my funny story. Thank you. You're not allowed to say I. There is no I. No, it's this recruit. This recruit. this recruit, yes. So don't make that mistake if you, yeah, you don't, you don't have to worry about it. So I did that, and then I went uh, to San Diego. Did two deployments on the West Coast. I did the initial invasion of Iraq, and then six months later, I was on uh, what's called a Marine Expeditionary Unit, and uh, we were promised, oh, you're going to go to Thailand, you're going to go to Australia. I was like, this is the life. So we went to Hawaii for a week and trained, which was fantastic. Got bit by a centipede, had to get a shot in the butt, which was awesome. I was like, oh, life is great. And they're like, oh, guess what? No, Australia. We're going straight to Kuwait Naval Base. You're going to spend 10 months in Iraq. Let's do that. So we did that. Uh, the summer of 04, we fought in the Battle of Najaf, which is the world's largest cemetery. Has anyone heard of that? Yep. 
summer of 04. I forget what army unit were, that we were with, but they were badass. So I'm not going to talk smack against the army because their tanks helped us a lot. Anywho, uh, the Imam Ali Shrine in Najaf, it's the world, like, apparently like Adam and Eve are buried there. I doubt that, but that's what the legend has it. Um, so we did that for the whole month of August. I spent my 21st birthday on Firewatch. Anybody else in that situation? Yeah. Thank you, sir. At least one of you. Uh, so uh, then we're like, hey, we're going to sit here for a while. And then Fallujah Part 2 happened in November of 2004. So we got the free ride up north about 50 miles. Uh, so we did that. I was attached to Kilo 3.5. We did the urban assault vehicle thing for them. Then we went back to Najaf, sat there, took mortars every day. Why not? And uh, they asked for two volunteers to go back on what's called an MPF ship, if anyone knows what that is. It's like a big cargo. You know it, Ben, of course, the Navy guy knows what that is. So an MPF ship is like a giant yacht full of civilians and two Marines. So we hit every port. So I did get my Australia. We hit every port on the way back to San Diego from Kuwait. And that's my 2004 story. 2005, I was on the Syrian border, attached to 3-6, did Operation Steel Curtain. 2007, I was back in Fallujah through 2008. In 2009, I did a Mediterranean cruise, drank a lot of wine, and uh, it was a fantastic voyage. Uh, after that, I was blessed with recruiting duty orders and spent a year in Lakeland, Florida. Uh, How many people while you were recruiting did you con into joining the Marine Corps? Did I con? Zero. Did I recruit? 243. So between my first year, I won Rookie Recruiter of the Nation, and I was afforded the opportunity to run my own station as a station commander. So I chose Clearwater Beach, Florida. Why not, right? I like to surf. I like to fish. Cover your ears like every Marine, like women. So let's go to Clearwater Beach, Florida. So I spent three years there. Uh, I took a crappy station that was worse in the nation to number one in the nation. And then, you know what my prize was? Hey, you have two weeks, you're getting out. So that was my prize, and that was August of 2014. So then my wife's like, hey, let's just move home to Pittsburgh, and here I am, and that's where I met Jake. And here we are at Voodoo Brewery. <laughs> so, so, yes. Do I miss it? Every day. I wouldn't have gotten out. Um, I'm not going to talk politics, but I think the drawdown's bullshit. And uh, I would have definitely been still wearing the uniform right now. What do you miss about? Everything. The camaraderie, the brotherhood. I mean, just putting people in the Marine Corps, you know, shaping their future, you name it. I miss it all. I know it's a controversial uh, subject, too. I've known some guys that got letters in Afghanistan saying, when you get home, you're pink out. Slips. The yeah. pink slips, yeah. yeah. So what rank were you at the time, and what was the, what was the reasoning behind it? Why you? I was a sergeant, uh, an eight-year sergeant, never got in trouble. They shut down E6, 7, and 8 for, I think it was from like 09 to 2015. So just recently, like if I would have been able to stay another year, I would have been a staff sergeant right now. But that's not the case. You know, you can either be a victim or you can do something about it, which is, I'm glad I met Jake. So, so basically you, you were a victim of being in a small MOS, right? And there were limited spots. It's they filled those and didn't go anywhere? Second largest MOS in the Marine Corps besides infantry. 1833, which is amphibious assault vehicles. I mean, we span three coasts, well, Okinawa being one coast. Um, it's not a small, they just shut down promotions, period. So. Wow, it's brutal. Yeah. You like being in Pittsburgh? You like what you do now? You like hanging I, with Jake? I love everything about Pittsburgh. Uh, I married a Pittsburgh girl. 
live in Mount Levin, like I mentioned earlier. I have no complaints except, and hold your booze till the end, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. <laughs> kill the mic. <laughs> Kevin, kill, kill his mic. He's done. And a Penguins fan. <laughs> Go Penguins. <laughs> hey, thanks a ton, man. All right, we're getting close. We got five minutes left. Mr. Ryan All. Uh, my name is Ryan All. I was U.S. Army uh, Infantry. I grew up in a military family. Uh, to speak about the disparity between the services, right? Where's Ben? Where's Ben? Oh, yeah, there he is. So I love Ben, right? So he starts talking Navy, and I'm glad somebody said it up here. I just, like, zone out. I have, like, no idea what he was talking about. Well, so a similar thing happened with me and being in a military family. My dad was an Air Force guy, uh, 20 years in the Air Force. And I enlisted shortly after 9-11. And he thought for, like, five years, after my first tour, he thought that I got drafted into the infantry. Like, I didn't pick it myself. And I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, I totally, like definitely pick the infantry like that's what I want to do I was like an action hero like fanatic when I was a kid he was like he just looked at me he's like you chose the infantry and I was like yeah he's like man I don't feel bad for you anymore like that sucks that sucks man so yeah that's that's what I did I did two tours one in 2005 and one in 2009 where'd you go to crit the first time and Taji the second time uh second time was with a, a striker brigade um with the Pennsylvania National Guard which was awesome I was a big fan of that both year-long tours yeah, my first, yeah, yep. What'd you do while you were down there? All the infantry stuff, which if any of you guys are infantry veterans, right, includes like all the super fun stuff and all the really crappy stuff. So like, you know, I get to, like, by the way, best job in the military, E5 infantry team leader, right? People call you sergeant, you still get to kick indoors, and you're in charge of something, but not too much. And you're still like you're still like young enough to be one of the guys. But as soon as they put that rocker on you, which I got after my second tour, it's like just paperwork, just so much paperwork. But uh, yeah, it's good. Yeah, E5 is great, right? So like, there's not enough responsibility that you have actual work that you need to be doing, but you also don't get stuck policing trash up either. Yeah, so you get to you get to do all the fun stuff, like I said, the the kicking in the doors, but then you also get like as an infantry guy, like the, hey, go clean out the latrines and pour some kerosene in that big thing and stir it around on fire. And I don't know, I think I need to get on a VA registry or something for that. <laughs> so, yeah. So you're still in? I am. I'm still in the Pennsylvania National Guard. I switched over to the dark side, and now I'm a logistics officer with the Pennsylvania National Guard. I'm an MCO, like uh, Megan was. Uh, um, so I do, I do that as well. And uh, I currently work for the Vet Center, which is a part of the VA. Um, had a big impact on my transition, so I have to give it a little bit of a plug. I work for it, but I'm very passionate about it because it had a, a very large impact on my transition as a service member. Between my two tours, I had PTSD. I did not admit to it, right? I was in... I was being seen at a VA for primary care, and a lady um, walked me down the hallway. I didn't know where I was going. She's like, you need to speak with this guy. And so I sat down, I talked with this guy for a little while. He was a psychologist, and he looks at me, and he tells me, like, Ryan, you have, you have PTSD. And I said, no, I don't. No, I'm fine. I'm, I'm good. Yeah, so whatever I have to say to make this uh, conversation end up so I can leave, that'd be great. So I, I left, and I, but I was going through a real hard time, you know, looking back on it. I, I definitely did. And I didn't go see anybody for counseling until after my second tour because that was really the time when I realized that all those things that I was feeling, right, the, uh, 
uh, the anxiety, the being nervous around crowds, you know, the feeling like I was missing something. I would walk out all that sensation stuck with me for years because I was I spent so long wearing body armor and carrying around, you know, my M4 and such that uh, I would leave my house when I was home and I would feel like I was missing something all the time. Uh, that sensation stuck with me for a long time. And it wasn't until I got geared up to go on my second deployment that I realized that something was wrong. Like, it start, I started to feel normal when I was gearing up. I'm like, okay, I got a purpose. I got something that I'm doing now. And that, that's when it clicked with me that um, something's not right here, right? Because going to war should not feel normal. So that's, that, it was after my second tour that I went, I went uh, to seek some counseling. I went to a vet center, and it was great. It was super uh, laid back. The counselors all there were veterans, so that was important to me to speak to someone who had been to, uh, through a similar experience to me. So that was that was a big part. That was a big part for me. I mean, I mean, I know, and I have to say something about this just real quick. You know, veteran suicide. We all probably know someone. I, I've I've lost uh, my lieutenant from my second tour. Took his own life. Uh, so. I'll just say this. If you guys know somebody or think you might be struggling, um, please reach out to somebody. If you can't find anybody, reach out to me or reach out to somebody here. Thanks a ton, man. Yeah. Appreciate you being here. Yeah. Real quickly, you're... Uh... Oh, yes. Uh, we have a couple people here. Florian uh, in the back there. Florian and uh, Johannes. Johannes? Got it. Documentary filmmakers from Germany who are here doing a documentary on the military-civilian divide, right? So they're interviewing veterans and stuff. Specifically, um, they would love to speak with female veterans as well. So uh, male or female, but especially if you're a female veteran, Miss Andrews, if you wanted to go introduce, uh, they are leaving in June, but they'd love to interview and talk with some people, so they're right back there. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. By the way, Veterans Breakfast Club, awesome. Awesome stuff. All right, so that's it for tonight, guys. Thanks for coming out. Our next event is going to be June 23rd at the Lit Club in Carrick. Uh, we've got some flyers up here, so if any of you work in the veteran sphere, if you want to take them back and post them at your organizations, we would greatly appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Jake Volker. Uh, hey, guys, just real quick, thanks for coming. This is super cool. Kind of two quick notes. Um, we're a veteran-owned company. If anybody knows a veteran, especially a post-9-11 veteran that's looking for a job, call me immediately. About half of my staff for both companies I own is completely veterans. I'll do anything to hire a veteran. I have a really, really hard time finding them. So post-9-11 vets, I've got a card right here. Um, if I don't have a job for them, I'll find a way to get them a job within my scope. I can't promise it. Secondly, um, if you guys are a charity, you know other veterans' charities, Voodoo Brewery will do any type of charity event, no matter what, if it's for veterans or it's for Homestead. My card is also here. Email me. That's all I need. Thank you. Hua. I see a lot of Army guys here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thanks again. And thanks again for having us, Jake. We really appreciate it, man. Okay, so one last thing. We also do interviews uh, that we record at Heinz History Center. We travel to other locations as well. Uh, and we're trying to get, right now, get some post-9-11 interviews locked in. So if you would like to do so, they're super relaxed. Uh, you talk about whatever you want to. We talk for about an hour. It's real casual. We'd love to sit down with everyone. Uh, so if you're interested, let me know afterwards. But that's all we got. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. You've been listening to another live storytelling event by the Veterans Breakfast Club. 
For more information about the Veterans Breakfast Club and our post-9-11 Veterans Storytelling Project, including a schedule of our events throughout Western Pennsylvania, visit us online at veteransbreakfastclub.com. Thank you.